But we thank you that no matter what the weather is like outside, the sun, your sun, is shining in here because he's in our hearts. And so, Father, we take our eyes off of all the things in the world today, the political issues, all the other issues, and they're important to you, but we set our eyes this morning on you and on your word, and we rest and trust in your precious Holy Spirit. Father, I believe, I know, that there's something you want to say to us today, to each of us individually, but more importantly, to us collectively as a part of the body of Christ here in this place today. And Father, as we pray and continue to seek you, we prayed on Wednesday night at our prayer meeting and we'll continue to pray for unity, for healing, for bringing us together. We thank you that you've given us your word. And Father, as we open your word today, we're trusting the precious Holy Spirit to take this word and to do what only the Holy Spirit can, to breathe it past our prejudices, past our ideas, past our tiredness, past our attitudes, and to can breathe it directly into our hearts and touch our hearts with what you want to say to us today. And Father, as best I know how, I have prayed and sought you and felt you've directed me, and I yield, as I prayed this morning, I yield my heart my tongue and my mind to you to speak only what you once said and only with the heart with which you want to say it to us. And so, Father, may we have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to grasp what the Spirit is saying to us today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, what I'm going to... We're going to talk this morning about Jesus' last prayer. And this is an idea I got from watching Andy Stanley right before, before, early before the election. And what we're going to talk about is something we've talked about before. But this approach, I, I hadn't really thought about in these terms. It really opened my heart to see some things. And so Jesus is now finished. We're going to go to John 17. Jesus is finished. He's grown up for the first 30 years of his life. He's now spent th- about three and a half years ministering among the people in, in Palestine and, and people north and south came to see him. And now he's chosen by God's direction 12 men, one of whom is a traitor, and he knows that. And there are about 70 other disciples, followers, that are a larger group around him. And then there's kind of the, the, the groupies that follow him wherever he's going until he starts saying some difficult things. And now he's, the, the purpose for which he came has become, the time of that's become near. And it's gotten nearer and nearer and nearer. And so in John 14, 15, and 16, we've talked about this a number of times before, Jesus is now slowly filtering himself away from the world and honing in and focusing in on what he is here to do. And so as he came in for the triumphant entry, the whole city's praising him, and now he's gone through it. He's gone through other times, and now he's meeting for the last time with his disciples, those that are most dear to him. And we've talked about before that those instructions and words he gives to them in John 14, 15, and 16 are so precious because these are the last things he's going to say to them this side of the cross. I never thought this before until right now. And then when he's finished with that, he pulls aside. And now he's left the crowd, he's left the 70, And now he's left his closest associates, his closest friends. And now he pulls aside to talk to the one who he started with and the one he'll end with and the only one who can see him through what he's about to go through. And that's his Father God. So John 17 
is a prayer that has three parts to it. And we're not going to go... We can, you can put that up there. Go, the first part, he's talking to the Father directly about his relationship and basically says that, that I, I've done what you put me, sent me here to do and now I would like you to return to me the glory which I had and set aside before I came here as a human being. And then he, means, he prays for the disciples, the 12 men that he's about to turn this over to, or 11 that he's going to turn it over to. And he prays for them that they would not fail. He prays for them that they would have the grace and the strength to be able to, to start this church that he wants to start, to, to, to do what he's called them to do. But then in verse 20, you can put that back up again there. John now, Jesus now prays, Jesus prays to the Father for you and for me. Because he says, I do not pray for these alone, that's the disciples, the twelve, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, and that's us. We believed in them through the words of John, the Apostle John, through the words of Matthew, one of the two disciples, and then through Luke and through, and through Mark. They weren't not disciples, but they were followers of him. And then through others who began to know. So we, this is, he's talking to us. So this is the last... In fact, he's, al- he's already talked to the God about himself. He's talked to God about his disciples. Now he's going to talk to God about you and me. These are the la- this is the last prayer. And, and, and we're going to look at what he prays for. He doesn't pray that we'll be safe. He doesn't pray that we'll be wealthy. He doesn't pray that all our needs will be met. He wants all those things, but there's one, the, the thing that's the strongest, the most important thing in his heart, the last thing that he has a chance to pray to his Father about that's in his heart is this, verse 21, that they all may be one as you Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Stop there a second. Of all the things he could pray for, he's praying not just for unity, but we be one. Why, why with all the things he could have prayed for, all the things that should have been on his heart, the thing that was on his heart most of all before he gave his life up and paid for us, paid for us, is that we would be one. Well, it's a nice idea. I mean, it's a good, unity is a nice principle. It's a good principle. And I know it's important. But, but why, why in the world and in heaven, why, why is this the most important thing that he would pray for to the Father before he goes to the cross? He gives us the answer. That the world may believe that you sent me. Stop. I want to stop and meditate on this for a moment. Because as, past, as a pastor, as Christians, most of you have been a Christian for a long time, we know what our mission here is. But we look at so many ways to do this, through our programs, through preaching, through being online. All these things are good things. And we need to be out witnessing. We need to be out doing... That's right. We need to be doing those things. But look at what Jesus says. Is the foundation for the church that he's gave his life for to birth what he says. Now, this is Jesus. This is not some commentary that I'm, I'm reading this morning. This is not some pastor online with a big church and a big ministry and his view. This is not my view. This is Jesus. 
the head of the church, and after all, it's his mission we're here for, This is what's in his heart first and foremost. And Jesus is saying, this is the way it will be done. And without this, regardless of our programs, regardless of handing out, regardless of anything else we do, if we don't have this, it will fail. In his eyes, everything hangs on this which is why this is his last, final, most important prayer. That the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus is saying here that the world will not, cannot believe that the Father sent Jesus as the Messiah unless the church is one. Just as he is one, with the Father. Now we'll talk maybe down the road about what that unity is because it's more than a unity of mind. It's more than just agreeing with one another. It's more than just liking one another. He uses the example that just as you are one with me and I am one with you, my prayer is that they would be one with me. That was in John 14. But my prayer also is that they be one with each other because you see we can't be one with him and not be one with each other. So that means, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, if we're not living in this unity with one another, we're really not living in our unity with Him. 22, verse 22. Do you have the next verse? That the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, verse 23. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfect. That means complete in one. So when we're not, if we're not one, we're not complete. And he's not complete. I want to look at this through his eyes this morning, not through our eyes. And that the world may know that you have sent me So the only way the world's going to know that God sent the Jesus as the Messiah for their souls is the way we walk together as one. And then not only that, and that you have loved them as you've loved me. The, oh, Jesus, this is Jesus saying this, not my idea. Jesus is saying the only way the world's going to know how much God loves them is if we are truly one with each other. This, this to me changes everything about how I see unity. Unity is a principle. Unity is a foundation. But it's more... Why? Why is this so important? Because to God is saying, without this unity which I have given my son's life, I've sent my spirit to live in you, to bring you into one. And but with, because I know how critical this is because without this, it cannot be done. What I put you here to do cannot be done. So these are the la this is the last thing Jesus prayed before he went to the cross. On the cross, he, he prayed some things out. So let's go to Acts chapter 1. Now Jesus has died, been buried, been raised from the dead, and he's walked among the people, the disciples, for about 40, 50 days. 
And now these are his last instructions to them before he ascends into heaven. So these last instructions are critical. It's the last time he's going to see them face to face until he, until they're in heaven, until he comes back. He's already told them to, do, to wait. We're often in such a hurry to do something and we run out there to do something without what he's, the instructions that he's given us to do. He's, he said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now look at the last thing he says to them. But you shall receive power when the Spirit has come upon you. And we pray for the power. We talk about the Holy Spirit. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be uh, outpoured. But maybe there's a reason why that hasn't happened yet. And you shall be witnesses to me. Actually, that says witnesses of me. Literally in the Greek it says, you shall be my witness. You shall be a witness of me, what I'm like, who I am. This is why he was praying back in John 17 for the unity, so that the world may know that God the Father sent me. Why? So they'll, because they'll now see me in you. So that you, the church, shall be a witness of me in the world, in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the utter ends of the earth, Seekonk, Providence, wherever you're from, wherever your community is, and those around us. So understand this. The mission of the church is not a cause that's going to be important to us down the road. It's not theology. See, a cause are people that have come together around a principle that they believe in. The church is not a cause. It doesn't even have causes unless there is causes. The church is the body of Christ. We are here to be a witness of who He is and what He's like and through that what God the Father is like and what He wants. Out of that, there are many things we do, but the foundation of it is that. And this is what the church has missed. We've tried to take off on the mission without the foundation. He said by giving the Holy Spirit, He would enable them to be witnesses of Him. So, so think of this. He didn't say, look, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to send you out. And I want you to go tell people about me and be a witness about me. And I'm just going to sit in heaven and watch how good a job you do. I think that's the way most people see the church. He said, no, 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 no. You can't be a witness of me unless I'm living in you and then living through you. So I'm going to take my Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to put Him in each and every one of you so that individually you can be a witness of me, but collectively you will be a, a much more powerful image of what I'm like. I'm not going to make you look the same outwardly. 
You're not going to have to wear the same clothes. I'm not going to change you all into the same color, black, white, pink, or blue, whatever it is. I'm not going to... I'm going to... This is going to be the genius of it. Because all of you are going to look different on the outside, but you're going to be the same person on the inside because I'm going to live in you through the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus is saying to the church. And we've tried to go out and build programs and do works for Him. So let's go look at what Jesus has actually done, what God did for us. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's just spent three chapters reminding them of who they are and what God's done for them. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So he's not saying, look, you've got to get this act together and then God's going to do something for you. He says, the first three chapters is Paul's telling them what God has done for them and he's telling them he's made them one. He's brought the Jews and the Gentiles together. You can't get any more opposed to each other than that was. And he said, I've made them one. I've broken down the dividing wall in Christ. He's broken that divide and he's made the two into one and brought peace. And now look what he's going to say. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. In other words, act like who you are. Verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. So the way we're to relate to one another is in all lowliness. By the way, these are his qualities. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, when he says, Come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. The word meek is gentle. I am gentle and I am humble, and you will find rest for your souls. Peace. In all lowliness, gentleness, lowliness and gentleness with long suffering. He's saying, act like me who's in you. Bearing with one another in love. Verse 3. Endeavoring, look at this, this is why these words are so, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying, look, you need to, you need to create unity among, you guys need to become one. No, he's saying, you are one. I made you one. Now endeavor to keep that unity. That tells me it's going to be attacked. So he's not telling us we have to achieve something that would be much harder. He's saying, I've made you one. You can't do this. I've made you one. Now understand this. That unity is going to get attacked. So you need to come together and defend that unity. Endeavor to keep the unity, there it is, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Keep going. Why? Because there's one body. There's not the Pentecostal body, the Baptist body. There's one body. There's not the black body, the white body. There's one body. There's not the Republican body and the Democratic body. There's one body, and it's His body. This is what we're in to endeavor. We're to fight to keep this unity. There's one Spirit. Go back again. I didn't finish. 
One spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling. We only have, we have one hope. We're going to be in heaven together. And the person you like the least, I'm sure God's going to have you living right next to them forever. <laughs> so you better learn to love everybody. Then you can choose. <laughs> uh, that's just me. That's not scripture. Verse 5. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. Keep going. One God. One Father of all. Who is above all. He's through all. And that one God is in you all. That doesn't mean Paul was Southern. (laughs) He's reminding them what this unity is is. Now, I want to I give you... God's, the Bible's so wonderful. Not only does it teach principles, it gives us examples. And, and you'll be glad, that, just as I am, that I did not, we don't live back in the, in the biblical age because God used the mistakes and examples of real people and, and wrote them for eternity in the Bible. So we have a church in Corinth... We're going to talk about that today and next week. I just want to give you a little bit of background of what the city of Corinth was like. It's in southern, it was in southern uh, Greece in a section called Achaia. It was, Greece was in two sections. The north was Macedonia, the southern part was Achaia in the Bible times. Corinth was a city, an old city, that had been destroyed and burned like 44 BC, somewhere around there. And the Romans came and rebuilt the city. And they made it into a Roman colony and it became a very prosperous but very cosmopolitan city. That's important for us. So if you, it's like New York City where, or London or some of these big international cities where you've got many different nationalities and cultures living together. Well, they're, they're physically together. And they're, they're, they're divided in you know, different towns, sections of it, based on their nationality and their language and their culture and their practices. Many of them. Very prosperous. A lot of... A lot of uh, a lot of commerce went through there. Some of the major trade routes went through there. And, 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 and Paul comes there on his second missionary journey and he preaches the gospel and people get saved and they get saved out of these various different cultures, various different religions, and, and they come out of that with all their baggage, their attitudes, their customs. They now are coming together to become the body of Christ in Corinth. And they didn't do very well at it, just as we human beings tend to do. So Paul wrote a letter back to them, called, we call 1 Corinthians, and he wrote this letter back to them to address some issues that had shown up because of their lack of understanding of what we're talking about today. And then he, it appears as if he's answering some questions that they were asking. We're not going to go through the letter. I want to focus on, on two main parts of it. So we're going to look first of all at um, that background. Oh, by the way, uh, this was a very active, demonstrative church. The gifts of the Spirit were flowing in abundance. That's why most of what we know about the gifts of the Spirit come from this letter. 
where Paul was addressing them. And they were flowing in, in abundance. There were obviously very si- many signs and wonders and miracles. So if you came into one of their services, things were happening. It was, this church was happening. There was activity going on. God was moving in this place. Great things were happening. People were getting healed. People were prophesying. People were all kinds of things that to our senses, to their senses, told them God was there and they were spiritual. But Paul is looking at that church not through their eyes, but through the lens of Jesus' final prayer because that's what's most important to him because that's the only thing that will accomplish his mission for the church, which is to show the world who he is and what he's like. So Paul addresses this letter to them in a loving but very fatherly way. So, we'll begin to look at this. 1 Corinthians 1, he starts right out. There's some preliminary things here we're not going to read. 1 Corinthians 1. We'll start in verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a pretty strong plea that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you. We'll talk about that in a minute. He's not talking about we repeat the same things out loud. He's talking about, well, we'll see where it is. That there be no divisions among you, but they be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Verse 11. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's house, she was a snitch, I guess, <coughs> that there are contentions among you Notice what he addresses first. Verse 12. And he's going to explain what they are. That there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of one you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, that's Peter, or I'm of Christ. In other words, they were, they were identifying who they were in the church by their spiritual origin. Who brought them to the Lord. Or who they were following. Verse 13. So this is is what Paul talks about being divided. So his question is this. Wait wait a minute. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? They They were attaching their identity. They were attaching who they were and therefore how they could relate to other people who were not in the same group based not on the spirit that lived in them, but based on their origin, their, their spiritual DNA as they saw it. Because those that, that had been saved under Paul's ministry and that they, they followed his blog and saw him online, and those that, were, that, that through Peter and those that through other disciples and, and, and Apollos was a teacher, that's who they were identifying with. So they would collect around people that had that same thing in common and they were not recognizing that they were of the same body with those that were following other people. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, you've lost sight of something. What, you've, what you're doing is you're dividing Christ. So when we get into strife and divisions over political issues, 
When we get into strife and division over racial issues, I'm not talking about, we'll talk about how you face these issues, but it starts with this foundation. Then we're dividing Christ. If Christ lives in us, if I don't identify myself more with Him living in me than with any of these other issues, then I'm dividing, we're dividing Christ. And he goes on to, to say some other things about this. Let's go to chapter 3 because he continues this discussion there. 1 Corinthians 3. And there and now he comes down to what this means to them. Now, brethren, I could, cannot speak to you as spiritual people. See, they thought they were. In fact, they thought they were so spiritual that there was, their reaction to this letter was not good. So when Paul tried to come there again, they wouldn't let him come into the church he formed. I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as carnal, as babies in Christ. He calls them spiritual babies. And all these wonderful outward things were happening. So outwardly, things looked great. They were moving in the Spirit together. But Paul said, that doesn't tell me where you are. Through Jesus' lens, you're still little baby Christians. Now the shame is, that there have been people who received Christ years ago who are still in this state. Not because they don't know anything, not because they don't come to church, not because they haven't served in this place. In fact, I would venture to say there are undoubtedly pastors out there that are still babies in Christ in Jesus' terms. Why? Verse 2. I fed you with milk. We're going, to see the con- we're going to see now in a minute the consequences of these, these divisions. I fed you with milk and not with solid food for until now you're not able to receive it. So the spiritual maturity determines what, how, what word you can receive. So in our DNA, where, where the message of grace is so popular and it's a legitimate message, but if that's what you're feeding on, if that's all you can receive, you're a baby in Christ because that's talking about what He did for you. And until we learn what he's talking about here, we will never receive what he calls the meat of the word, the real meat. We're not able to receive it even until now. You're still not able, verse 3. Because you're still carnal. There's word. We've been trying to do this for several years now. Preach a word to us about denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Christ. That's not baby food. And that's undoubtedly why some people have left because they want to live on baby food. And when you're a baby, that's okay. When you're 25 years old, mm, you won't grow. And Christ won't get done what He wants to do. And how, what's the sign that you're carnal? Where there's envy, strife, and divisions among you, are not you carnal? And behaving like mere men, that means people that aren't saved, the world. Verse 4. For one says, I'm of Apollos. One says, I'm of Paul. Excuse me, the way, Paul, I'm of Apollos. Are you not carnal? In other words, when you identify yourself with something other than Christ, you're carnal. Now, I'm not saying don't deal with the issues. I'm not, ta- I'm not talking about that. Where's your identity? 
What is your life oriented around and standing on? Are you not carnal? Verse 5. Who's Paul and who's Apollos? But they're just ministers. That word means servants. Through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. Verse 6. I planted Apollos water, but it's God that gave the increase. It's God that's working in your life. Verse 7. So neither he nor plants nor he nor waters is anything, but it's God who gives the increase. Verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. They're working together. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Keep going. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, and you are God's building. He's talking about, in God's eyes, this is all one operation. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid the foundation, others builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. Keep going. For no, no, no foundation can anyone lay other than which is laid, which is what? Christ Jesus. It cannot be a cause. The cause may be just and it may be right. It cannot be a political party. It cannot be political ideas. It, it, it can't be good humanitarian efforts. There are many good things out there the church does and needs to be involved in. But if it's not founded, if its motive and if its aim is not founded in Jesus Christ, then it loses its moral authority and it loses His anointing because the purpose for everything we do is to reveal Christ to the world. This is what Paul says. Now, giving these instructions, I don't praise you because... Oh, okay, now we're going to move on to the next subject. Thank you, you're already ahead of me. That's good, that's good, 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 good. Okay. So remember that our purpose is to show the world who Christ is, that He is the Son of God, came as the Savior to the world, and what He's like, God's fathers represented Him. So, that's the, the problem they had. Now we're going to look at one particular manifestation of this problem, it was their communion service, and that's what we're going to do today. Now, in giving you these instructions, I could not praise you. Since you came together, notice he's talking about a church service. Since you came together, not for the better, but for the worse. He's looking at it through Christ's lens, verse 18. First of all, when you come together as a church, now remember I've taught you what, when we hear the word church, we think of a building, of an organization, of something like FCC or some other church. We think of it as that kind of a, a, a image. But the word church is ecclesia in Greek, and it means different people called out of, by somebody, out of different backgrounds, different nations, different tribes, different groups, called out of other despair, or despair, different groups, and called together for a purpose together. So he's saying... When you come together as a body that's been brought together out of different groups to be one group, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Verse 19. For there must also be factions among you. Whoa, wait a minute, go back. Verse 18, go back again. No, not, that's because you were wrong. When I was reading through this the other day, and I can't tell you how many times I've read this, how many times I've taught this. I've got to move along. Why is he talking about divisions in one place 
and, 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 and divisions in one place and um, uh, factions in another. So I looked up the Greek words. The Greek word for division, the Greek word for division is the word schisma, S-C-H-I-S-M-A, from which we get schism. And that word means literally to tear something. Something that's whole is to tear it, begin to tear it. So it's literally torn. Okay, now verse 19. So if there's divisions among you, there must also be factions among you. Well, I looked up the word factions. Why why would he make a distinction between divisions and factions? Factions is the Greek word heresis, H-A-I-R-E-S-I-S, from which we get the word heresy. So a heresis, a faction, is a group of part of a whole separating themselves from others based on opinions, purposes, or goals. So the first word, division's a tear in something that's whole. And now this means it's grown to the point where it's a schism. It's a group of people who are now oriented not around Christ, but around a common purpose, around a common aim, around a common belief system. They've no longer based their identity in Christ, but they've based their identity in something other than Christ. And the other implication is this is deeply ingrained. Now I'm going to try to do something. Honey, would you come up here? You may be wondering, what's this bag about? I brought my dirty laundry. This is an old sheet. How do we do this? <laughs> yeah, let's do it this way. Now you take this side, okay? I was going to have other people come up, but because of the dis- social distancing I- and all that stuff. So this is one... Well, it, I didn't cut it out exactly square. This is supposed to rep- represent one sheet, okay? So what happens when we begin to get into division with each other, the Bible says there's a tear, And maybe we get in divisions with somebody else and there's another tear over here. And the problem is, if we don't deal with that tear, what happens is the tear started because she started going that way believing that and I started going this way believing this. So why don't you go that way and I'll go this way. Now something that was whole but just had a tear in it is now two separate pieces and we can't get it back together very evenly. Thank you. It worked. <laughs> Put our dirty laundry away. So. <laughs> Here. Now that may seem like a simple exercise to you, but that's exactly how Christ sees divisions in the church. That's exactly how he sees and the concern is, notice he says, for then there must also be, it will ultimately lead to a tearing of the body of Christ. Let's go on to verse 20. Now he applies it to the communion service. This is, this is he's not just correcting the service, he's correcting the ultimate problem, and this is a manifestation of it. And look at the results, look at how it affected them. 
Therefore, when you come together in one place, he's talking about what we're doing today, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, you may come together and you may be drinking your wine and you may be eating your bread, but because you're not one, it's not the Lord's Supper. You're just having a, a fellowship night or day. We may look at, oh, well, Lord, we're celebrating communion, but if there's divisions among us, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's not His Supper. It could be ours. It could be the church's. But it's not His that He's instituted. Let's go on. Because this is what they were doing. For an eating, each one takes to his own supper ahead of others. In other words, what they were doing, they weren't sitting like this. They were sitting, I don't know, in a house or somewhere. And so they would bring the food, because the church didn't supply it for them, and then whenever this time this came, they just started going off into little groups and having, it's like a picnic we used to have, we'll have them again, where people get together with their own food and they begin to eat. And then there were people over here that didn't have any food. And they weren't even aware of them, let alone not care. One of you eats supper ahead of the others. One's hungry, which means they didn't have anything to eat. And this is even worse. Somebody's drunk. Keep going. What do I say? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? No, what he's saying is what you've done is you've profaned the Lord's table. You may be going through the act, but you've profaned it. The word profane means you've taken something holy and you've turned it into something man does. It's carnal. Or do, do, do you despise the church? Look at how God says about that. Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? The root of this, again, is in their divisions. They're not one. Oh, they're one on the outside. Just as this church is one on the outside. If somebody stands up here, it looks like this great thing God's done. And I'll talk about that later on. He has. But there are divisions here. We've heard some of these on Wednesday nights. And there are other divisions here over politics, over issues. And I'm calling you back to what in Christ's eyes is more, infinitely more important than any of those issues, as important as they may be, because the church can't do anything for those things if we're divided. Or do you spies the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Verse 23. Keep moving along. For I received, now he's going to talk about the communion service. Notice, I received from the Lord. Paul's not saying, look, I got this in seminary and it's a good, I got a good, con-. no, Jesus told this to me, which I also already told you, delivered to you, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, verse 24, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Stop here. One of the divisions in the body of Christ is over whether that actually becomes his body or it just is symbolic. I got an easy answer for you. Treat it as if it's actually his body. Because the issue here is what respect do we give to this? Or do we profane it? Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Not your cause, not the issues of the day, not who won the election or who lost the election. I did this for you. Paul says, was I crucified for you? No. Keep going. 
In the same manner, he also took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim what I want you to proclaim, the Lord's death for you until he comes. Therefore, whoever... Look at that. Now, now we, see, we tolerate these divisions not understanding what they cost us. And I understand some of them are deep-seated. But look at what God says it's costing us. Whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that means whoever does not recognize what is the significance of this, of this is His body, and you are His body. This is to show you, remind you, not only is this His body, you are my body. Together. In an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28. Let a man examine himself. Oh, thank you, Lord. So we have a chance to examine ourselves and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner. That doesn't mean you don't have good manners. That means just what we're talking about this morning. Whoever eats this and drinks this communion without recognizing that this is his body. We are his one body. Now there are other parts of it, but we are one body here. Regardless of our differences, this is the most important thing because this is what binds us together. In an unworthy, Ixer drinks judgment to himself. Why? Not recognizing we are his body. Keep going, it gets better. Verse 30. For this reason, for this reason, for this reason, for this reason, because you're not one, or you're not walking in the oneness I created in you, for this reason, many of you are weak and sick. And many sleep, that means died. So when we do not walk in this union that Christ has created, we expose ourselves to Satan's, to sickness and disease. This is how critical it is. This is God's view of it. And many sleep. I think that's as far as we go. No, keep going. Verse 32. But when we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord who may not be condemned with the world. So we have, we, we have given the opportunity when we see this to judge ourselves. And Paul's saying, if you judge yourself, God won't judge you for this. Next week we're going to take a look at the answer that Paul gives to them. But now we're going to partake of this Lord's Supper. And I want to give you just two quick things before we actually do this. Contrary to what some churches teaches, Jesus only gave us two sacraments. And they are baptism and they are the Lord's table, communion. What's a sacrament? Sounds like a very religious term. A sacrament, there's a purpose for them. It's a physical act that 
impacts our five senses, which communicates to us through our five senses a spiritual reality that we can't see with our five senses. For instance, this is a, my wedding ring. All right? It's a piece of metal. It's a nice piece of metal. It's 24 carat, I don't know, whatever it was she got me. Okay, it's a, it's a piece of gold. Okay? It in and of itself has, has no spiritual significance. But every time I touch this, it reminds me that 53 years ago, God did something spiritually between us as well as He made us one. He took two very different people and He made us one. That's not physically apparent because we physically look different and we are physically not in the same place right now. But this represents a union, a spiritual union by this. So every time I touch this, it reminds me that there's something happened that I can't see. But more than that, other than that, it reminds everybody else that I'm joined to somebody by God. That's an example. So baptism is a physical act by which you're immersed in the water and you come out. And it represents your commitment and being joined to Christ. You went into that water, the old person, you're immersed in that water, which is him and you're brought back out which is your resurrection life so that's to get through to our senses that I died the old person died and this person that's in Christ is a new person with a new relationship with him and the same way communion is a physical act taking the cup and taking the bread is a physical act that reminds our senses that just as we are one with him we're one with each other. And one of the ways he just showed me to help me understand it years ago is when I eat that piece of bread, or in this case it's a wafer, in about an hour it becomes part of me. And you can go in there all you want and you can't pull that piece of bread back out of me. It's now become one with me and that juice has now become one with this. So Jesus said, I am the bread. So as we eat this together and we drink this together, we're representing to our senses and to one another and to the world that we are in Him and He is in us. But the corollary that has to be that therefore I'm one with you and you're one with me. So let's pray. Let's, let's stand together. Bring your communion elements with you. What we're going to do is we're going to share these together right now. Pastor Ray, are you somewhere where you can play? And then what you do with these is, unlike before, you're going to leave with them and there's a container supposed to be in the back that you can deposit these. Father, we come to you. And you'll use, you, those of you that are watching online, uh, uh, take something that's going to become, you can swallow and you can drink, that's not alcoholic. <laughs> Father, we've, we've heard you speak to us through your word right now. And we judge ourselves. All of us have issues that we can have with one another where, we've, where there have been tears in the body of Christ because we've been upset at somebody. We've held grudges against people. We've, we've, we've disagreed over things and then let it into our heart. It's fine to disagree in our minds, but when that gets into our heart, we begin to bring a tear into the body of Christ. And your words encourage us to say, right now, we can judge ourselves. 
So I'm going to ask you to take just a moment because we don't have much time left. And whatever's touched your heart in this message, just to judge yourself, say, God, this is right. I'm doing, I'm wrong in this area. I repent of it. Help me to change. Now, Father, I stand here before you and before our Lord as the representative of this church body before you. And as I stand here, Lord, we judge ourselves as a church. We thank you for the wonderful outward unity that we have, but we're learning there's not that unity under the surface and not certainly at the depth you require, that you've called us to. And so we judge ourselves. I judge, we judge ourselves as a church. We ask your forgiveness and to help us. And my prayer, Father, is this now we take this, this cup and we take this wafer into our bodies, that your spirit will make this more real to us than it ever has before. Jesus, we ask you to bless this bread and to bless this cup. In Jesus' name, amen. You may eat the bread. And you may drink the cup. Let's stay standing for just a moment. We're going to close the service in just a minute. But you may be watching online or you may be here. And this is all strange to you because I'm talking about being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But you may not know whether you're in one or not. You may have gone to church your whole life. You may have been active in your church. But you've never invited Jesus Christ, this living Christ, into your life to live inside of you and to make you one with him. And if you've never done that, that door's open to you. In fact, the Bible says right now he's standing at the door of your heart knocking and asking you, will you let me in? He wants to come in to bring with you his life, his love, his joy, his peace, and his victory over death that we sang about today. And he's ready to do that. He's right there at the door of your heart, but you have to let him in. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to lead you in a very simple prayer and ask everybody here to join me. And I'll give you one instruction and then we're going to dismiss everybody. Say, Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. You know everything I've ever done, everything I've ever said, everything I ever thought. For whatever did not please you, I ask you to forgive me. Wash me in the blood of Jesus. Make me clean in your sight. Jesus, I call upon you to come into my life as my Savior. And I put my life into your hands to be Lord. Fill me with your Spirit that I may live strong for you for the rest of my days. Amen. If you did that for the first time or maybe you recommitted your life to Christ today, I want you to call our office tomorrow morning after 8.30, 508-336-4110. Some will answer your phone because, because we want to send some materials out to you to help you with the decision you made today. And you need to tune in next week or better yet, come here. We'd love to meet you. Tune in next week. We'll hear some more along this lines. If you prayed that here for the first time or you recommitted your life, when you leave here, if you go around to the Common Ground Cafe, there will be somebody there to give you some materials. God bless you. I hope this encouraged you and ministered to you today. Those of you who came online, we thank you so much. So we're going to...